The contents of this show are for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. Any information on the show does not create a client-therapist relationship and should not be taken as professional advice. Before making any decisions regarding your health care, ask your personal physician or mental health care professional or call 911 for any emergencies. We are three friends exploring connection from the coffee shop to the podcast studio. I'm Amy. I'm Anna. I'm Erin. You guys remember how this all started? Yeah. Anna hooked us up to a tour on the House of Pod. And we went from zero to launch in less than two months. Oh, quick. Gosh. Quick. So fast. With the help of the House of Pod. Ooh. Yeah. In Denver. In Denver. Yeah. So if you want your story to be told, get hooked up with the House of Pod.com. They are so amazing. They help us with all things podcasts, all those little questions, all those big questions. From idea to production to distribution, all of the things. Yes. They Just are let them know amazing. that Less Alone sent you. Yes. Hey, hey, everybody. <laughs> hey, we're back. We are back. And we've got some wonderful guests in the studio. We sure Super do. exciting. We are super excited. So Kelsey and Brian are here with us today, and they are some of my very best friends, and they have an amazing story about connection, and so we want to hear from them. So Kelsey and Brian, hello. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> Hello. Awesome. We are so glad you guys are here. And we're super excited because you have, it sounds like an I mean, incredible story. Yeah, yeah. An incredible story. And it relates so much to our topic of connection. Yes. So you guys want to talk a little bit about what you're doing just quick and then we'll kind of go into background stuff. But tell us a little bit about what you're doing around a light we share. So basically the idea of a light we share is, and I won't go too far into everything that happened quite yet, but I had some major medical issues related to my heart in 2018. And coming out from that, I really started to reconsider my own purpose, you know, kind of what my mission was in life. And coming out of, of this whole experience, I realized I have such amazing people in my life. And I think one of the things that we really came to understand seeing other people in the hospital and seeing what they were going through is not everybody has that same experience. But I think the most important part about it is everyone we met carried with them this light inside that it got pumped into our lives through the interactions with them. So people, obviously there were people we had known for a long time, friends and family who'd been around forever and we could count on that from them. But there were strangers who came in who just brought such significant experiences to us. And I think that was a huge part of what helped me get better. And so just being able to to bring that back to everyone and share those ideas with with everyone out there in addition to that we learned that there are pretty significant issues in both uh, emergency medical and intensive care units among staff in terms of their mental health well-being and unfortunately suicidality so we really wanted to bring something back to them as well because the staff at the hospital were so integral to and you know of course they're integral to me getting better physically, but getting better mentally, you know, just keeping me feeling like things were moving forward, keeping my family feeling positive about things. It was huge. They put so much of their hearts and their light into that. And so we want to be able to give back to that as well. That's so awesome. That's so I love good. the name. 
a light we share. Thank you. That's amazing. That picture that you all have on your Instagram of like the one lit up person and then it's spreading is such a good visual of what it's you're so trying beautiful. to do. It's beautiful. We'll definitely put that yeah. on yeah, our yeah, site because it is a great visual. Yeah, it's at yeah. a light we share. I was mm-hmm. trying to explain to them last night like what we were talking about. And so I was like, you just need to see this picture. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, um, it's a pretty yeah. perfect representation yes, of what we feel. Mm-hmm. So, Aaron, you met Kelsey at a camp? No. Is that? <laughs> Most people no, wait, at a camp. No. Wait, at Jeff. At, at his, Jefferson at a, Center for yes, Mental Health. Yes, okay. Yep, we she meets everyone at the camp. That's what I meant. Yeah, the camp. First assumption, the camp? <laughs> not the camp this time. Not the fishing. camp this Yes. <laughs> not fishing at all. Yeah, okay, never mind. <laughs> not fishing. Yeah, okay. at the camp. So we were therapists on the school-based team. And then, Got it. Yeah. I think it. I saw your light and I hung on to you yes Aaron does that's a good brain like you've been doing this forever Kelsey she told me she was drawn to you like a moth to a flame oh that's the best compliment ever no kidding wow so that's great so Kelsey you have a background as a therapist is that right yeah I think Aaron and I have been in the field about the same amount of time and still doing that work in Salida, where we live. Mm-hmm. And do you use that work with a light we share, or is that kind of a separate? It's all still developing. I think it all ties together. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like oh, yeah. it's a process of defining what this is and how we go forward. But mm-hmm. but I feel like it does. I mm-hmm. think that in the work that you do, like generally from being around you, is that you carry that with you regardless of. Mm. If you're doing it intentionally with this mission, but that's how you are. I'm getting all teary. <laughs> but that's how you are. And that's with your presence that you bring to things. Generally is a light around. Yeah. So, And yes. we do want all of you to know out there that we have a giant toilet paper roll. <laughs> because or the tears. most likely there's, there's going to be a lot of tears. tears that's today. right. I love coffee. I love coffee too. Oh, so good. Oh, my goodness. And Mustache Coffee Club, you know how to do it right. It's so fresh. They roast and ship on the same day so that the person receiving their coffee will have it on peak freshness. They even have a brew after date. Isn't that crazy? It's like crazy. It's so the crazy. exact opposite of everybody else who has the expiration date. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But they need to make sure you're not drinking it too fresh. Yeah. <laughs> right. They are uh, mustache kashi is specialty single origin and pay above fair trade and market value. Yeah. And since it's a subscription coffee club, we get that variety. So it, you know, we don't eat the same food every day. So we don't want to drink the same coffee every day. And the best thing is you all can get $10 off your first subscription at mustachecoffeeclub.com. Just don't forget, you got to enter less alone to get the $10 off. Oh my gosh, are you so overwhelmed with your digital photos? Because, oh my word, I know I... Thousands? Yeah, I used to be until I found this digital backup boot camp. It is so, it's such a total, total game changer. For it's, your pictures? Yeah. So this lady, Miss Freddie, has a, a digital backup boot camp for photos organizing. I spent a few days tackling this nagging task that has been something hanging over my head, this program was a complete game changer. That's awesome. You even found pictures of your fourth grade mullet, right? Yeah. I mean, 
like I was the in old in these, hard copies? Yes, I was sending these two pictures from back in the day, like, hey, look at this. So go to tiny.cc backup boot camp. And it's all lowercase again, tiny.cc slash backup boot camp, all lowercase. Get yourself hooked up. You want to get out of debt. I can help you get out of debt so fast. So get yourself hooked up with the debt-free roadmap and it will walk you through all the steps. I want to help you get to where you want to be. Debtfreeroadmap.com. So without further ado, I think we should get into your story about your what happened? Near death experience or death? Yeah. Yeah. What so, happened? So you two, well, can we back up even more? So you two are married. You live in Salida. You mm-hmm. have two Colorado. daughters. Two, yep. And just to kind of set the framework of that. And so, high school sweethearts. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, we've been together since we were 16. Wow. We met that's at impressive. Evergreen High School. So another Colorado shout out there. Yeah. Yeah, Colorado. So when you first met, did you two know like, oh my gosh, this is my person? That's good. <laughs> I, I think I had some sense because I still remember we were in French class together. And <laughs> that's awesome. You're like, so she's cliche, so right? <laughs> well, the, Would you like to go to Paris with me? <laughs> the, uh, the French class was in one of the little modular buildings outside the school. They were working on oh, yeah. uh, uh, renovating the school. And so I just remember she had just come back from a family trip to Mazatlan, was it? Yeah. What grade was this? This was, I was in, uh, I was a junior. She was a sophomore. Okay. And I was in the classroom. I was like the French club president. (laughs) Uh, I was really into French at the time. That's a good tip. Really into French. That's a good part of the story. Oui, oui. Um, Are you fluent? No. Okay. (laughs) Not even close. Okay. So I sat down because I got there early because I always got there early. And then I was just watching other students come in the door to this little building. And all of a sudden I see this amazingly gorgeous, tan, <laughs> long leg, incredible <laughs> young woman walk through the door. And I I knew I right at that moment, Whoa. I was like, I need to know this person Whoa. much better. And Aww. there came an opportunity for us to uh, get extra credit in French class <laughs> by going to see a French puppet show oh my gosh. <laughs> at uh, Washington Park. And so I said, well, I'm going to go. Does anybody want to go with me? And <laughs> I see. Staring her down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you are going to come with me. <laughs> well, only one hand in the whole place went up. And I was so excited because I knew whose hand it was. And I said, great. Then it's a date. <laughs> and then I got nervous and invited a friend to go with us. Had <laughs> a girl. That is a great story. So have you been together ever since then? Ever since. Oh my gosh. Yep. Did you go to the same college? 1996. Yeah, we, so I went to Chico State in Chico, California. And because we were a year apart in school, I left. Kels was a senior. She graduated and then came out to Chico as well and did most of her kind of undergrad general studies there and then back to Colorado again. Oh my gosh, and that's so great. You were both in Salida or you were in Evergreen and then chose Salida after college or Well, we were in Evergreen, went to college, came back, lived in Denver for ten years, and okay. then just really got tired of other people's taillights. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so then we we made our way to Salida. We'd never been in Salida before. We just kind of 
It was like throwing darts at a map. And huh. I was like, well, that place sounds cute. We had driven through that valley multiple times. My parents live in Ridgeway, which mm-hmm. is down near Telluride. Mm-hmm. So we were driving through the valley once or twice a year. And after a while, it was like, maybe we should just stop and live in this valley. Hmm. So, And it's worked out pretty well. So how long have you lived in your current community? About four and a half years. Four and a half. It's okay. been four and a half years? I reckon. Yeah. Wow. Long time. Yeah. Well, and long enough, it sounds like, to have this amazing support that really showed up for you in the hospital. So can we jump into that? Are we ready to hear the story? Yeah. For kind of long-term background of it, I was born with a congenitally malformed aortic valve. And so at eight years old, I was diagnosed with that and aortic stenosis. And I was just told by doctors, you know, you have a surgery at some point. And that point came up in 2016. I had my first valve replacement and that was done at St. Joe's and was a great success. And everything seemed to be going well that year. I think it was four months later, I climbed Mount Albert. And then the month after that, I ran a 10K in Salida. And so I thought, you know, things are fantastic. So then fast forward to 2018, and I just started having weird nondescript symptoms. And the first thing that came up was I was diagnosed with a blood clot in my popliteal artery, which is a major artery in the leg. So this was in my right leg. And I was flown out of Salida down to Colorado Springs to have that removed. And I remember talking to the surgeon who took it out afterward and saying, like, you know, it's kind of weird that I would have a blood clot at this age. And he was like, yeah, that's weird. And I said, it's kind of extra weird that it's in an artery, right? And he was like, yeah, that's extra weird. And I was like... And what age were you at the time? Just I was just about to turn 38. And did you say you were flown to Colorado Springs? So this was like an emergency. You had to get this. Yeah. The doctor came in at the emergency room in Salida and he said, you know, we need to get you to Colorado Springs as quick as possible. So we're getting the ambulance ready. And he came back 30 seconds later and was like, ambulance isn't going to quite get there fast enough. You're wow. taking the helicopter. Oh, my so. gosh. Wow. And just so everybody knows, because our listeners are all over the place, but Salida is a mountain town. Mm-hmm. And so it, you have to go through the mountains to get from Denver to Salida or Colorado Springs because... To get anywhere, right? Yeah, that's called... We're it's really like the front rural. range. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, we're like three-hour drive from Denver to two-and-a-half-hour drive from Colorado Springs, so... And in the mountains, so depending mm-hmm. on weather, it could be a lot longer. Yeah. So... Okay, just for yeah, good context. Yeah. Well done. I know yeah. some of our listeners are in my home state of Minnesota, so <laughs> just well got to clarify. Well good, good call. Good yeah. call. But I got to say, for somebody who likes to fly, it was, you know, it's not the way I would recommend having your first helicopter <laughs> no, flight. Oh my gosh! It turned out pretty well for me. But were you on a stretcher or were you like sitting there looking out the windows? They so they have kind of a stretcher that they can put the back up on so that oh, I could sit okay. there and look out the windows. But it actually locks into the base of the the helicopter. Okay. And I was impressed. My pilot was very smooth takeoff and landing. Amazing staff there. The folks who work for Reach are Mm. incredible. They took great care of me. But so we came out of this all with this surgeon just saying, like, "Uh, I don't really know what's going on. And his advice when I said, well, what do I do from here was go to Mayo. And I was like, you mean like Mayo, Colorado? And he said, no, there's no Mayo here. You got to go to the Mayo Clinic. And I was like, 
I work 40 hours a week and my wife works 24 hours a week and we have two kids. I don't think we can just show up at Mayo tomorrow. <laughs> it's not really in the plan. So Can I just give another little Minnesota shout out? Is that where it is? <laughs> yeah, oh, Mayo okay. Clinic is, is like big time. Oh, okay. Uh, you know. I don't know. <laughs> Makes us Minnesotans proud. Yes. Stay proud. Anyway. Well, so I had these kind of other nondescript symptoms. You know, it's August in the high mountain desert of Colorado, 90 degrees during the day. And I would get these chills where my teeth would just start mm. chattering. Oh. And like I'd be in a meeting with my boss and my teeth would start chattering. And I'm like, oh, I know this is awkward, but I'm not sure how to turn it off right now. <laughs> wow. So wow. we had that. I was having some, I think what we would just call cognitive issues. Maybe uh, neurological. Hmm. Yeah. Things where I would walk into a room and kind of forget why I was in the room. Hmm. Blobs in my vision. You'd repeat things that you had said. I'd repeat things that I had said. (laughs) (laughs) And like my left side went numb for a short time when I was at work one day. So just, yeah, things that that didn't make much sense. We had tests being run, but there was just nothing that was coming up. So then I ended up with a pain in my arm that was very similar to the pain I'd had in my leg when I had the first clot. And we went back to the hospital and they couldn't find in the, the scans that they ran that there was a clot there. So... They sent us home, and after talking it through for a bit, we decided to call my cardiology team, which is at UC Health in Denver. And they said, you know, why don't you just come on in to the ER here, and we'll see what's going on. So we went ahead and made that drive. They did find that there was a clot in the the brachial artery in my right arm, and so that was removed. But because we had talked to the cardiology team about what was going on, They started running some other tests, and what they found was that I had an infection in the aortic valve, the one that had been replaced, and that the infection, basically, it was growing stuff. The doctor called it vegetation. You don't want to have that growing (laughs) in your artery. artery. That doesn't sound like a good thing. No, and you also don't want to put that on your salad. No. (laughs) But this vegetation, pieces of it would just break off, and they went to different spots. So they caused the arterial clots in my leg and my arm. And then we found that they had also been going to my brain and causing a series of strokes. And that's where those kind of neurologic symptoms were coming from. And so we ended up with the most incredible surgeon ever. And I apologize first to all surgeons out there for saying this, but you may know surgeons are not really known for their bedside manner. Mm-hmm. I think mostly because they generally work on people who are unconscious. Oh. <laughs> totally. They're like, this isn't a skill I need. <laughs> but my surgeon, Dr. Muhammad Aftab, uh, came in and the first time he saw us, he probably spent an hour and a half with yeah. us just going over everything that was a concern about what was going on in my heart, all of his plans for surgery, what we were going to do to go in and get this infection out and Mm. get on the road to recovery. And unfortunately, one of the things that he told us was because of where the vegetation was growing on that valve, it's right next to the coronary arteries. So he said, if a piece breaks off and hits your coronary, then you have a heart attack. And... 24 hours later, I woke up feeling like the whole building was just collapsing on my chest. And I. You were in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And which which hospital did you say your doctor 
was this was at UC Health. UC Health. Yeah, on the Anschutz Medical Campus. Yeah. And yeah, I I just I was sure from things that I had read, things I'd seen on TV. I'd never had a heart attack before. And I will say if you're going to have a heart attack, do it in the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Pro tip. Yes. <laughs> life hack? Yeah, yeah life hack. We're all full life hacks here. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. But they were all over it. I mean, you know, just immediately coming in to help get me taken care of. And they said, well, we have two ways to fix this heart attack. Because they said, you still have this major clot in your artery. And so we need to, or in your coronary artery, we need to go in and get this thing out. One way is to basically open a catheter in your leg, go up through your artery, take some tweezers on a stick. And well, that's the technical term. <laughs> yeah. 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 Clearly. Girl, this is what we're going over in medical school today. <laughs> tweezers on a stick. <laughs> So they said, you know, we'll go in with those and then we'll pluck this stuff out of there and you'll be okay. And I said, well, you said there were two options. So let's, you know, figure out both. And they said, okay, the second option is we go in with this medication called TPA that dissolves the clot and breaks it up and then you're good to go. And I said, well, they both sound amazing. (laughs) Are there any drawbacks? And they said, possibly. If we use the tweezers, we go right by your valve and maybe we break off some more of this vegetation and then a huge chunk goes to your brain and causes a massive stroke. And I said, oh, what's behind door number two? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they said, well, the TPA is a major blood thinner. And so because you already have some damage in your brain, there's a chance of bleeding into your brain. And my thought was like, ah, oh, it's, you know, cool. You got to have blood in your brain, right? <laughs> You sound so positive about it. <laughs> it was a little more intense at the yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> You've done some work around this. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's funnier now. Yeah. <laughs> but the, so I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Bleeding into the brain? And they were like, oh, massive stroke. And I was like, oh, okay, what would you do? And they were like, uh, we'd let you decide. Oh, Oh, I hate that answer. (laughs) We had at least one doctor who finally said, you know, the TPA is the less invasive way to go. And so it might be a good way to start, see how it does. And then we can go back. And and so we said, fine, let's do the TPA. And what were you thinking, Kelsey, at this point? I had witnessed him having the heart attack. And so I was just in survival mode of like, how do we figure this out and keep him safe? And it was really hard to not have medical professionals give us direction in that moment and leave it to us, but it really was left to us. But Kelly's is like, a boss at researching, I would say. Well, and thank you. All the things <laughs> that you needed to, to check up Yeah, on and too. we had a lot of family. I mean, as soon as family heard what had happened, they were gathering, and we have lots of medically inclined folks in the family, and so we had a lot of support, but it was crazy. So we start the TPA drip, and so it's intravenous, and they plan to have it run for about two hours. And every 15 minutes, they would come in with this little flip chart of activities for me to do called a neuro check to make sure that my brain function was still going properly. So like the first page was just a picture that I had to describe everything in the picture. I remember it was a lady doing the dishes in front of a kitchen window and just describe everything that was going on. I think there was maybe a simple maze and there was a page with just three letter words to read. And at one hour and 45 minutes into running this TPA, I couldn't read three-letter words anymore. I couldn't actually even differentiate individual letters. 
And they said, that's not good. So they took me in and found that I was, in fact, bleeding into my brain. And that's when I stopped remembering for a couple weeks. So most of the story in that time then is is really Kelsey's story more than mine. Oh, wow. Can I pause for a second? What is that like to have that experience so intensely? And then you hear from Kelsey and then you don't remember. What's that like for you now and looking back? It's totally strange. You know, I think I have a relatively strong memory most of the time. And so there were things like, you know, I spent two weeks in the the neurosurgery or just neuro ICU. No, it was mm. neurosurgery. And I apparently became relatively close with one of the nurses there, Paul, and I don't remember him. So, yeah, it's just... Have you seen him since? Yeah, before we left the hospital, we stopped back in there and and checked in with everybody. The next thing that I remember was waking up in my hospital room and everybody was kind of looking at me expectantly, like Mm. maybe something had happened. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) So this was four weeks later? This was closer to three weeks later. Okay. And so I looked at Kels and I said... So when am I having surgery? And she looked at me and said, oh, babe, I've got so much to tell you. Mm. So he had spent two weeks in the neurosurgery ICU. They had to get his brain bleed stable before he could have his heart surgery. And so that time was just about keeping him stable, trying to keep him comfortable. They were doing some occupational therapy, physical therapy, and just trying to get him through till we could get his heart surgery done. And then they did a CT of his heart just before the scheduled heart surgery and the infection had become much worse. Had they been treating the infection alongside the vegetation? Or, yeah. or no, that's the same thing. But yeah, along- they're the same thing. Yeah. So since they discovered the infection, he had been on IV antibiotics okay. throughout. And what we learned later was that it was a really rare bacteria. So I think antibiotics helped, but they weren't fully effective. Yeah. So just prior to surgery, we learned that the infection was much worse. And Dr. Oftob came to us and just said, here's what we're going to do. Here's all these possibilities of potential negative outcomes. And we're gonna, we got to get in there and get that infection out. So on October 1st, Brian went into surgery that morning. And we were hopeful that it would be six hours, maybe. And it turned into 14. They had to do a ton of work in replacing his aortic valve, his aortic root, did a bypass. I mean, just incredible work. And when they went to close his chest, his heart stopped beating. So he was put on, can you say it? I can't. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's life support, ECMO life support, and it does the work of the heart and lungs. So he was put on that with the hope that his heart would bounce back, that it was in shock from everything it had been through. He spent four days on ECMO. And so does that mean like completely unconscious? That's what I thought at first, but it wasn't. He would wake up a little bit, and as time passed, 
he would be there. He was intubated. Mm -hmm. He was hooked up to all kinds of stuff. So he wasn't really, I don't think you remember any of it. Mm -hmm. But there was one time, one of the things we talked about over and over again is how bad he wanted a haircut when he got out of the hospital. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like this was our, this was what got us through was this damn haircut. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> so his, well, did it just get all bushy? Yeah, his hair was just kind of wild. <laughs> and it was this focus, like something we could focus okay. on, I think, you know, like tangible when sure. we're out of here, this is what we can do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's intubated, he's hooked up to ECMO, and I'm on one side of him and his sister's on the other side, and we're talking about his haircut. <laughs> and his sister's like, maybe we should get you a mohawk. <laughs> and his arms flew up, and his head came up. Oh, <laughs> We're like, never mind. We won't do that. It's okay. It's okay. That's a no from Ryan. Yeah, he did not want a mohawk. Um, so not breathing on his own <laughs> no heart beating very on his opinion. own but, but definitely opinionated on the Mohawk <laughs> he's very particular about his hair which is funny too because when we met I had a Mohawk oh, oh funny yeah. that's awesome but he would do things like when he first started waking up one of the things he was most worried about is he didn't have his wedding ring on Aww. and he was kind of pointing to his finger and trying to ask about that and Aww. he would sign I love you and so he doesn't remember but we knew he was there Mm. And after four days of monitoring and his heart was starting to come back online and they thought it was time to give that a try. And so they took him into surgery and removed this ECMO device and his heart took over and started beating on its own. Wow. Yeah. So you did you technically die? I, You know, the way I look at it, my heart stopped if there hadn't been somebody there. And I think one of the really incredible parts of the story is while they're preparing this ECMO machine, my surgeon literally reached into my chest and hand massaged my heart to keep blood pumping through my body. Whoa. In what is... <laughs> quite, Our mouth is dropped. <laughs> was probably like the most intimate interaction two oh, people can have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God. So, wow. Yeah, that High five for that dude. I know. I know we got to give him a few shout outs yeah. on the website at a minimum. But uh, <laughs> good job. You know, obviously, I didn't know it was happening at the time because I don't think I would have handled that as well as I think of it now. But yeah, then you know, it's it's three weeks after I remembered my last memory, and all of a sudden, I'm finding out that all of this had happened. And to me, it really felt like the kind of thing that that should come with a near death experience, and I was very disappointed. Possibly even distraught yes. about not having had a traditional near-death experience. You know, oh, I, interesting. Yeah, there's no light. I wasn't visited by God. My great-grandparents didn't come talk to me, nothing like that. I just kind of woke up, and then I was told, you know, you were dead, and... Like, well, that's not how the movie said it was supposed you're to go. Like, you're all, I just got this t-shirt. Like, you got that one and something else there. Just a little heart massage. Come on. Come on. I signed up for way more than that. But we, we got to talking. And so Kelsey, the wise therapist that she is, as I was trying to figure out, how do I find purpose in this when nothing came and gave me a purpose? And she looks at me and she says in her best therapist voice, well, what do you think the purpose is? <laughs> Kelsey, could you give us that? Yeah. Well, what do you think the purpose is? <laughs> yes. Well done. So good. 
And so I started talking about the fact that I had been working in a prison for about four years in Buena Vista, Colorado. Before that, I and worked... And what were you doing there? I was a teacher there. Okay. So I started out in GED and then kind of took over oversight of all the academic and vocational programs. And before that, I was a teacher at an alternative and dropout high school in Sheridan, Colorado. And before that, uh, I was a general studies teacher at a youth drug and alcohol rehab in Denver. And all of them can be relatively dark places. There are mm -hmm. a lot of people who are not experiencing happiness in life in prison or rehab. And so every day I tried to go into those jobs just with the idea of bringing some positivity. And so I looked at Kels and I said, well, I think, you know, I've always tried to be kind of a positive person in these dark places. So I guess that's it. I'll just, I'll carry the light. And that became the basis for our mission was just this idea of carrying the light and just bringing the best of ourselves to other people to allow them to give the best of themselves to us. So that was a very profound moment. Mm. We'll all have uh, tears in the studio mm -hmm. if you wonder. So there's yeah. that. Yeah. And then I started getting better. You know, I went through physical therapy, occupational therapy. We got to the point where the hospital said you don't need to be at the hospital anymore. So how long were you in the hospital? That stay, I think, was 38 days. And then we didn't want to be three hours away from the hospital, so we stayed near the hospital in Stapleton for a couple of weeks, but, you know, kept going for walks because of the reading issue. I was seeing a speech-language pathologist about getting my reading back and going through the motions with that. And then after two weeks, we decided, you know, it's time to get going home. And so on... <laughs> Uh, November 2nd, we drove back to Salida and got home to our girls, to our dogs, and, you know, just getting back to regular family life. We had eight days there, and then on the 10th, we went to get groceries in the morning. We talked to some neighbors, and we came back. I was real tired. My parents had come to town to help us out, so I sat down next to my dad to watch a CU football game. A little while later, I just kind of slumped over on my dad, and he thought I was upset about the football game at first. Oh. <laughs> and then he turned and, and he saw that I just wasn't there. I was really, really lucky that Brian's parents were there, and we quickly determined Brian didn't have a pulse. And so we started CPR. We got uh, medics on the way and Chafee County EMS was there, I think within four or five minutes. It was, I'm so grateful. They got working on him. They used defibrillation and a machine, the Lucas. The Lucas chest compression system. It's basically a machine that does the chest compressions instead of having humans do it. So, you know, they're precise. They always go to the, the right amount of compression. And then, you know, you don't have people who are getting exhausted by the physical exertion of doing CPR. And they worked on him at the house for probably 30 minutes and weren't making progress and then decided to take him to our local ER, which isn't far from the house, and continue to work on him there. And finally, after 18 shocks and 45 to 50 minutes of CPR, his heart started beating again. 
So that's a significant amount of time. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And there were several times in there where the medics and then the ER doc came to me and said, there's not much more we can do. And in retrospect, I'm so thankful they didn't stop. Right. But most of the time, I don't know that they work that long. Where were your girls? Uh, They were at the house when Brian collapsed. And they saw what was happening. And I'm not sure who told them to go upstairs to their room. But somewhere in there, somebody said, go upstairs so that they wouldn't witness everything that was happening. And the... EMS workers talk about seeing them up in their window, their bedroom window, like looking out at the driveway. So when Brian was transported to the hospital, I got in my car and followed. Brian's parents stayed at the house with the girls. Once he was revived and stable enough, they flew him back to UC Health. We had been in touch with his surgeon. His surgeon had actually called me on my phone while the CPR was ongoing to say, is there anything I can do to help? And they were ready for him, and they took him and just started working their magic. Was it your same doctor? Yep. Our wow. same, the surgeon who had worked on Brian came in on his weekend off Wow. when he heard that Brian was in such trouble. I had to drive the three hours to Denver, and I was kind of oblivious. I didn't realize, you know, once he revived, I thought, okay, maybe we're okay. I didn't realize how detrimental being in CPR for that long can be because often the brain and other vital organs don't get enough blood flow and they die off. So when I got to the hospital, fortunately for the drive, I was in that oblivion and also shock. I got to the hospital and we had a doctor who came out and said, Brian had been doing what they call posturing. So it's kind of straightening his arms and putting his fists back, which is apparently a... Brian is giving us an example in the (laughs) studio right now. He's an expert at it. (laughs) And that that was a really bad sign, that it indicated probable brain damage and that we shouldn't expect him to wake up and that if we did, he would probably be neurologically injured. So they... Whoa. Yeah. Their protocol is to cool a person's body for 36 hours after an event like this. It protects the brain, and I'd need somebody more sciencey to be able to explain yeah, that. that's wow. interesting. So they put him in a medically induced coma, and they cooled his down. His heart was functioning okay, but his kidneys were failing, his liver was failing, they were worried about his brain, so he's on dialysis. But all that started to improve. And the big remaining question was, will he be there or did his brain suffer this injury? And 36 hours later, I was sleeping in a hotel across the street. At 1 a.m., the phone rang and I thought, oh, no, like this has to be horrible. And it's Brian's dad who was at the hospital with Brian going, he's waking up. He's waking up. And the nurse is in the background like chills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the story is that Robin, who was our nurse that night, like ran up and down the ICU corridor being like, he's awake. He's awake. He's awake. Because everyone expected the worst. And he was he was still intubated. And I mean, he was still really sick, but he was responding to commands. He was seeming like he was there. Wow. Which was, I think, all told with everything that happened, he had a 1% chance of the outcome he had. Only 11% of people suffer what he had, which was a cardiac arrest, and only 1% without neurological damage. 
So he started recovering again and started getting better. And they inserted a internal defibrillator, which has a lead into his heart. And if his heart goes into a funky rhythm, which they think caused it to stop the first time, it will shock him right back into a normal rhythm. I mean, it's crazy and such a good backup plan. Yeah. Do you believe in God? So I think it's fair to say that neither of us grew up like in a religious background or influenced by a particular religion. And I would say we both have like a spiritual connection to something. Yeah. And it's really interesting to think about because sometimes I can be really angry and upset and why did this happen? And there's that part of it, the unfairness, the pain that our whole family went through. And then there's the flip side of like, this is a miracle, right? Right. Like this horrible, horrible thing happened. And here we are almost a year later doing a podcast about it. Right. Um, What is it like? To do, I want after you're done talk. I want to hear what it's like to talk about it in this room. Yeah, you're such a therapist, <laughs> <laughs> especially in that quiet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? She's working <laughs> it. Sometimes it's surreal. I've had to do a lot of my own work. I have PTSD around everything that happened, and I think the passage of time is helpful for me because it's like, okay, maybe this chapter is closing or closed. And it's hard to trust that. But the question about God is hard because this experience for me shook everything up. I think it was different for Brian. Well, I think I've been at least fairly sure that there's a God now for a while. I, there was a time in my life when I was also sure that I was an atheist, and I think that's past. But I think what I really came to believe in through this process more so was the importance of humanity. And so I I believe in God, but I think what I really see is I see the influence of God through people. And so just that feeling of having so many people pouring positivity into my life at my darkest moment and knowing that my family was there And not only were they there, but they were being taken care of by other people, you know, feeling like the whole staff of where I was located at the time was really not just invested in seeing me get better because it was good for their morale, but, you know, wanting me to get better for the sake of that they saw a human in pain and they wanted to see that person thrive. and. I think that's what's amazing is, you know, people have such a great capacity for taking care of each other. And we end up so focused at times on the ways that we do the opposite of that. And it was uh, such a nice way to reflect on that when people need each other, they can really come together to do amazing things. That is good. Oh, (laughs) Oh, so good. So through the whole experience, you wrote a blog. And so can you share what that experience was like? Because so there was all these things happening on the GoFundMe page. And so Kelsey wrote this whole, just an update to everybody to keep everybody informed. It's a book, essentially. And so if you can you talk a little bit about that? Because as being people that love you, like... <sighs> Goodness. <laughs> What I've embraced through all this is that I am a writer and I love to write. 
I mean, it, I started writing these updates because as soon as we knew there was an infection in Brian's heart, there were new things and things happening every day. And we have such an incredible village. And I had no capacity to send 10 million texts a day. So it was a central place to update everyone. And what I found was that I could be vulnerable in it and talk about what this was really like. Aaron may know I struggle with vulnerability a little bit. That's um, why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> but in the writing, I could say like what this is like to watch my partner go through this, to watch my kids go through this, and to experience both the pain and the gratitude that was coming in waves through mm. the whole experience. Were you surprised by the way people showed up or didn't show up throughout the process? There was no no showing up. Yeah. I think that's where it gets me because I am so moved by everyone who sent messages or donated money or Aaron who came and sat with me or did a healing touch for Brian or in even months after we got home, a neighbor brought a quilt that she had made for me and she said, we need to take care of you too. And it was all hearts. And random people who we've never known who did things for us. And I think that people connected to the story, to this sense of human experience, like at its core, when you peel away all the other crap that we worry about, all the other stresses that impact us daily. And it's like, are we going to have it tomorrow? It touches people. Sure does. So how did you, how did you, Kelsey, how did you take care of yourself in this process? I don't know that I was thinking about it. I think I spent, in between both hospitalizations, I think Brian spent 51 days in the hospital. And I think I spent like 45 nights in the hospital. I wanted to be his advocate. I didn't want him to be alone. And it came at a cost. And I think that's why now I get to heal and do all that self-care. And even though I wasn't trying to, people were showing up and helping me through. People who'd sit with us, people who'd bring me food, people who'd set up acupuncture for me. So I think our village knew that I wasn't going to be thinking about that. And so trying to fill that gap. But it was just for me, it was like, we've got to get through this and frankly, being afraid to be away from Brian. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about what costs you what happened yeah i mean truly i have ptsd i have that diagnosis i have been working on it since things kind of stabilized and we got home through a lot of routes um, acupuncture and therapy and emdr and it's just this process of trusting that i can feel safe again i think i would have been okay if after the surgery and ecmo Things had continued, but then totally unexpected, the rug got pulled out yeah. when Brian had his cardiac arrest. And that's the piece where I think I was totally shaken. Yeah, Everything was hard, but having that element of not being prepared, thinking we were on a good track. In your own home. In our own home. The impact on our kids. You know, it just, it's hard to feel safe again. And so that's what my work is now. Did you find any like support groups or like was there anything 
that you found going through this outside of your village? Like, did the hospital have anything or was there anything that was already set up for people in your situation to find support? Brian's case was so unique. His illness was so unique. I mean, the hospital had support group for families of people who experienced strokes or heart attack. Mm -hmm. And so that was one element of Brian's experience and our experience, but it was so broad and different. Yeah. I connected into several communities on Facebook. Good. Can you tell us which ones? So there was the endocarditis support group, and that's the name of the heart infection, endocarditis. There's a sudden cardiac arrest support group, living with an internal defibrillator support group. I mean, there are right. all these yeah. pieces. And it's so unique because Brian's story is so unique. But I did, I found comfort there in yeah. people who had walked some aspect of this road before me, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And Brian, have you had to do work around what happened? I mean, physically, I would imagine that's a given, but like the the mental and emotional part of it. Yeah, I think it's very different for me. The trauma for me doesn't really stem from the experiences themselves because I just kind of wake up from them and then people are like here's what happened and Mm -hmm. so so your second near-death experience did you have any no no when it when he was in the middle (laughs) when we were in the middle of that we were he was on our living room floor having CPR all these things happening and I literally thought I hope you're having a near-death experience (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> please, please, just this time. I'm like, I, I mean, in, in bigger picture, come back. But yeah, also, yeah. when you do, I really hope that you get this thing. <laughs> oh, that's love. That is love. Hell, that is love. <laughs> it was so sweet. She, she took amazing care of me throughout. And I think that's where most of my work has been. I've had to come to terms with the fact that I didn't do things to traumatize other people, but what happened to me did. And working with, you know, the fact is a child should never look at their parents' eyes and not see them there. And so working with that, the fact that, you know, a lot of people on these support groups They talk about the heroes in their experience, and, you know, most of it is true bystander CPR. My bystanders were the most important people in my life. And not that I wanted to traumatize a stranger, um, (laughs) but it's also really hard to, to look and see the pain that they went through and feel like it was caused not by me, but by what was going on in me. And so, yeah, I've done I've done some work around that. I think otherwise, you know, again, I, I feel like I've had the opportunity now to just wake up twice. But knowing where I was before I woke up, I've had to, to do some work around just that feeling of not really being sure. You know, I, I don't remember collapsing on the couch So if it ever happened again, I assume that I wouldn't remember it. And it's so strange to just think like, oh, this could have been all done. And I had no idea of it at the time. I think that's part of why I was really hopeful for something that would say to me like, 
hey, by the way, you're here like real close to death. Uh, this is the edge. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just take a step back and everything's going to be cool. And so the fact that I didn't get that, you know, I just I still feel some proximity to that edge. And so just working out, feeling safe enough to be away from that. How are your girls doing today? It comes in waves. Overall, I think they're doing really well. They have had so much support outside of us. When Brian was in the hospital so long, my aunt, his parents, my parents, my grandma, I mean, there was just this system that came together. And I, there were moments that I didn't know where they were, but I just knew that they were okay and they were in good hands. And I think having such soft spots to land, they fared okay. And they saw things that, you know, at the time they were four and seven that nobody should ever see, and especially such little kids. And it brings up fears, and they know more about sudden cardiac arrest and CPR. And, you know, they have a million questions that they started asking as soon as it was done. So we've just tried to be really honest and soft and supportive and understanding of that process for them. And I don't think it's something that they worry about day in and day out, but some days it comes up. Yeah. That is quite a story. That yeah, is quite wow. a story. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you want to tell us about? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the concerns that people have had when I've talked to others is like, what can they do? And not for me, but just in general. And I think... As some of the most important things is take a CPR class. Be prepared to, to know how to do this. And I had CPR classes every other year while I was employed by the, the Department of Corrections. And I always thought, well, you know, this is the kind of thing that I would use on somebody, you know, who, who, there's got to be a stranger, right? Or maybe here at work, something like that. And so it was amazing to have it be people who were so close to me providing this. And, you know, you just, you have no idea who might need that. I think understanding what a defibrillator is, where they're yeah. available, being able to provide that, you know, what we understand now is for every minute that a defibrillator is not used, the chance of survival goes down by 10%. Whoa. So, yeah, it's that a very, very quick curve down. But that also speaks to like, that's crazy that you, for all those minutes, came out, oh, yeah. you know. Like, and do you have long-term, right. are you okay with sharing? Do you have any long-term damage or effects, effects? or So I think the longest-term damage is still to my reading ability from the stroke that was caused after my heart attack. And, you know, I, I can read at this point. It's just certainly not at the same level it was before I was sick. And otherwise, I get to take a lot of medicine. So that's fun. <laughs> And I have a metal box in my chest that, mm. you know, is my insurance policy. But other than that, I, you Does know, Does it for... feel weird? Can you feel it at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You feel it right there. Oh, really? Well, yeah. It feels like there's a box of Lucky Strikes <laughs> just wow. embedded in there. Your favorite. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Otherwise, no. Uh, my surgeon even said, you know, when it comes to physical activity, do what you are ready to do. Your body's going to let you know. And so like over the last three weeks, I think I've put, 
uh, close to 75 miles on a mountain bike. And, you know, yeah, I, I love being, we moved up to Salida to be outside. So yeah. it's great that I get to be outside at this point. Next summer we're trail running? <laughs> Maybe Aaron, so. you're trying well, to get every <laughs> single person she knows to start trail running with her. <laughs> yes. Oh, my is there one thing that you think got you through this or? No, there okay. are <laughs> many things. So many yeah. things and they all have names and places. Mm. And it was the power of people coming together on my behalf. And, you know, I I, I woke up to find... Facebook messages and comments and comments on Kelsey's blog and people in my room, you know, just hovering over me, maybe uncomfortably at times, <laughs> but, but there. <laughs> Kelsey just pointed to Aaron. <laughs> and I, I think the other thing was just like Kelsey said, you know, I, I woke up and it was kind of like, oh, I'm here in the hospital where's our family? And Kels was like, don't worry, they're fine. And I could truly believe that. We were so well taken care of in terms of our finances and things like that. I, I think just knowing that we were safe at that point allowed me to recover fully. And, you know, I think that's everything is just being able to have people come together so that you can feel like the things that are dangerous to me, the doctors are here taking care of. Everything else for me was set and taken care of, and I was loved, and there was light, and it was amazing. I would answer the same, and I think that that's what has spurred Brian. So in July, Brian left his job with the Department of Corrections to pursue this calling of sharing his story and talking about the light. And the light is something that is in every single person that you meet. And we have this opportunity to see it and to use our own light to bring it out in others. And that's what we had. That's what was fed to us. I mean, there aren't words to express what it's like to know you know, there are dozens of churches praying for you and you have family taking care of your kids and your dogs are with your friends. And and that light that sustained us when maybe our lights were dim was so powerful and I think is the core of why Brian's doing what he's doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what have you two done since you got back to Salida, life normalized? Have you done anything to like really keep those connections that you had in maybe some of your darkest days, kept them going today or growing or, you know, like deepening those connections or how are you maintaining those that really showed up? I know for me, I've always been close to a lot of people and always just felt that. But I don't know that I felt like I expressed it all the time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it now is just taking that time for a little bit of outreach to just different people who I haven't talked to for a while. You know, I had people come out of the woodwork and 
I got calls from friends from college who I hadn't talked to in years. Mm -hmm. And there was such gratitude for me in those moments of having people who I may have even forgotten were there. And so, you know, I wanted to be that same kind of voice for somebody, even if they're not going through something, but just to reach out and say like, hey, remember how we like each other? I'm still (laughs) here. We still feel that. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. Kelsey, really quick, what's your blog? It was part of a GoFundMe account that we had going at the time, and we're trying to figure out how to transition that to something that can be ongoing. I still update the GoFundMe a couple times a month when I need to write and when there's stuff to write about. And I'm trying to find a platform to switch that over to. Yeah. And then a huge question for you. Have your thoughts on death changed since this experience? I don't know that it's really changed my thoughts on death. I think probably it's changed my thoughts on life. Oh. So I don't know, maybe wow. same question, but kind of <laughs> okay. answered a different have way. You, and it's you. like, I got all these social media quotes right now. From you. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Like, oh. <laughs> quote, quote, quote. <laughs> okay, how have your thoughts on life changed? I guess we've been talking about that. I think a lot of it really, for me, uh, has to do with intention. And so it was something that was kind of a nebulous idea for a long time. One of the things that I got to do through the prison was to teach a class based on the seven habits of highly effective people. And I feel as though there's a lot in that text about, and you may not use exactly the same words, but about setting and following through on intentions. So really just the kind of shout outs to friends and family who I haven't talked to for a while or making a plan around things that really matter to me for taking care of my family, just taking care of myself. You know, I think that's a lot of what it comes down to is if I can set those intentions, you know, I hate to say schedule them because spontaneity is still fun, but it's great to go into something with a schedule of things and look back and go, you know, I really wanted to get some things done and I really did get those Mm -hmm. things done. And I love schedules. <laughs> <laughs> Taking my notes right now. <laughs> and I think when I look back at the end of it, you know, I mean, one of the, the amazing parts for me, so we had an exercise that the offender students would do in the Seven Habits class where they had to write their own eulogy from the perspective of Ooh. somebody who Whoa. cared about them. And it was super intense for a lot of the guys because many of them had a hard time thinking of positive things they might say. And when I got back to work, I was talking to another one of the, the teachers of the seven habits and he was like, dude. You got your eulogy. (laughs) And you didn't even have to die all the way. (laughs) And I realized, you know, what a special thing that is to have people telling me that, you know, I was a good person, that I was worthy of being alive. And so I think that's one of the, the big intentions for our mission is to just go around and remind people, you are worthy of being alive. And you are worthy of being loved. And you bring beauty to the world. And, you know, I think to me that's what it's all about. That's the whole reason I got to come back. Who needs God to tell you that? You figured it out, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the stuff that you're doing now, the light we share, the light we share 
And Brian can tell you all the reasons behind that from like an English teacher perspective. But <laughs> it's really it's good. What, it's yeah. what's it. We're driving to meet some friends in Durango and like going through all these names of this thing we want to do. And when we got to a light we share, we we're like, yeah, that's what we want. And we're still figuring out what that means. Brian is looking for opportunities to tell the story, to share this message in any venue. And then the medical professional community is another big piece of that. We learned of suicides within the unit where we were, staff suicides, and were crushed because those folks pour their light into their patients. And they work with the sickest patients in the hospital in that unit. And so that's another piece of it is we want to find a way to give back and to give hope to people who do that work but don't always see the outcome. So that's another piece of what we're looking at doing. I think that's really where it starts from. You know, we've had so many ideas of of where this could go and, and how to benefit people with it. And, you know, I think there's a lot of diversity to what we can offer but I think the start is just being able to get out, tell the story, and talk about what it means. And I think mostly because Kelsey wrote them, the most articulate forms of our mission are available on the website. So alightweshare.org. Great. I wonder, too, like even just your girls sharing their story with other kids. I mean, there's got to be other kids out there who have experienced seeing their parent in extreme distress. Yeah, we've had those conversations, too, about how getting through what we went through at all levels of our family yeah. could be a resource, a source of support for people who face that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Do you find it, like, at all tricky where it's like you, you don't necessarily want to be defined by this or, like, in the trauma of the experience so much and also having it as a purpose? So there are nights where I'm like, I can't talk about it anymore right now yeah. because it is our intention to do something with this. I don't think we could go through it and not change our path. So it's a defining moment, hopefully the biggest defining moment we'll ever have. And I just don't think we could do anything other than operate from that. But it is it is tricky because sometimes it pulls me back and I think it pulls Brian back and we cry pretty much every night as we talk about both the painful moments, but I think even more the gratitude that we have for coming through and having all the support that we have and all the beautiful things that have come out of it. But there was no question we had talked about, like, do we follow this calling and there was a night when we were out to dinner and Brian looked at me and he said, I have to do this. And I said, yeah, we have to do this. And that was it. So it's a work in progress and it probably always will be. But it just feels so close to our hearts. Well, I got to say for myself, and I'm sure I can speak for these other <laughs> two fellows. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting us in to your journey. And we're yeah, wow. so excited to follow where this ends up going for, uh, yeah. for both of you. And to support you, you yeah. as you, you share this. It's super yeah. incredibly powerful. Yeah. Thank you really for great. having us and yeah. giving us that chance. Yeah. yeah. It's our yeah, pleasure. Thank you for being here. Yeah. 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 
And I have to say, I've got some takeaways, personally. <laughs> I've got... Um, I'm sure you do. I'm going to sign up for a CPR class. <laughs> I'm going to reach out to people to maintain my connections because I've got a lot of support people right now that, you know, they need to know how much I love them. And I want to review The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, that book. Highly Effective People. Sorry. Highly effective people. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it would be really interesting to do a personal writing around what are our or what are our listeners defining moments in their oh, lives. I thought you were going to say eulogy. No. Huh? Defining moments. <laughs> yeah. 180. Yeah. Totally gets the wrong yeah. thing. <laughs> so. Wow. Good takeaways. What do you have, Aaron? <laughs> uh, I think that don't I cry. haven't hold. So I was uh, <laughs> during this whole time reading the blog, and then there sometimes, and then talking to you and whatever support I could provide. But like, <sighs> you got this. You got What's this. That? You can cry too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so to hear the whole story all together is it's. Getcha. Yeah. So thank you for sharing it. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really appreciate, I mean, you're being super vulnerable on the podcast. So that's some growth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> therapists <laughs> just gave each other <laughs> a high five. <laughs> There's a lot of those. Knee hugs after. Don't worry. And I was sitting here thinking like, I mean, I got some really great friends. <laughs> really amazing people in my life. And so thank you for being yeah. part of that. One of the things that struck me is the I have the spot right across from these two. So the thing that struck me is the love that you have for each other. You two are so beautiful together. Like you're like soulmates. They're sharing like, a amazing. microphone. <laughs> so they're sitting just but a couple like, inches apart. Like it's just so evident that the love that you have and the connection and it's just it's absolutely beautiful. So it's um, I'm glad that you were able to come in and we could see that. Thank, Thank you. you. So. Yeah. What's your takeaway? Oh, gosh, all the things. I think your love is really inspiring. I mean, I know that's not what we're talking about. but <laughs> Connection, uh, love, and but connection. But yeah, it yeah. is. It truly is. Like, I see such a deep connection between you two. And, like, that's so beautiful. And um, that's my takeaway. Do you want to comment at all about your relationship as far as going through this together? Has and it since changed? since you've known each other since you were 16? Mm. Well, I think the thing about a relationship that goes on as long as, as ours has is, and I didn't realize it for a long time, but, you know, it, it takes a lot of work. I grew up with people like The Little Mermaid and Belle and the Beast showing me how love goes. And then, you know, like the minute you realize you're in love, then the work stops and you just live <laughs> happily ever after. And then Kelsey showed up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then, you know, reality sets in. And uh, I remember at first being really afraid of doing work because I was like, well, if we have to do work, then this must not be as strong as I think it is. And what is work defined for you two in your relationship? Like, what does that look like for you two? It's been all different things in 23 years that we've been together. But it's really around honesty and vulnerability. And I think in this last nine months, it's been about compassion. As much as we want to share the compassion that we've had with people outside of us, that compassion has been huge in our relationship because we're both facing 
enormous defining events and moments and to be able to fall into each other mm. in those moments and find that safe place mm. is the work. Mm. I think so much of it for me has come down to communication as well. Just understanding that I have a communication style and Kels has a communication style and there's nothing wrong with either one. But if I listen to what she's saying only through my own filter, mm. then I respond to her through that same filter. And I think that's where at times there have been conflicts. And so over the years, I've just learned to really try to, to break that filter down and just listen and really understand what she's trying to say and what she needs. And uh, it makes a huge difference. And you can't go through something like this and have somebody who is so consistently right there taking care of you every step of the way and not, I mean, I would hope you wouldn't feel like you could just somehow throw that person away. You know, I mean, I I can't express the gratitude that I have that every time I woke up and I had to ask silly questions like, when am I having surgery after it was all done already, <laughs> that I had her there to be the one to answer those questions. And, you know, I know that we're going to have communication issues again in the future. And I know that the strength of what we have is going to continue to propel us past those kind of things and have us working through them. So I think the work that you ask about, it's dynamic it's and it's constant and it's always worth it. And you're both willing to do it. <laughs> That's incredible. I also just want to say, I think one of the takeaways that I've got, you know, I've Having your community, the Less Alone community, has been a great part of me in terms of setting intentions and just having a place to go and find questions about what kind of pizza I like and such. <laughs> Thanks for answering that, by the way. <laughs> saw that in, in our Facebook group. Well, it was great. It's a, it's a place to go in and respond and then look at other people's responses and go like, oh, a lot of people out there eat terrible pizza. <laughs> um, but in addition fan. to that, you know, just it's so cool to to have strangers commenting in the same way and then, you know, liking each other's stuff. And I, I love the community part of it. And it's really helped me. One of my intentions was like every time I see a less alone notification, I'll go in there and see what's going oh, cool. on. I, I don't oh, answer everything. But, yeah, it's just a cool way to like, ah, I really want to answer this because I know some other people are reading and maybe they'll get something from it. So yeah, it's, it's really awesome. For being in there. That's yeah. awesome. Appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, everybody, I think it's time. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. Yeah. Thank well, and you. we had yeah. one question. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Are you guys ready for this? I was going to like totally flip the whole thing around. <laughs> yeah. Anna's going to ask it. <laughs> okay. So we're going to end each interview with a question. The and same one. The same question. And what's that? <laughs> we're testing this one. We're, out. <laughs> we're testing. We are guinea pigs. Yes. <laughs> Buckle up. Okay. So hopefully. This goes okay. Okay, so the question is, what is the weirdest thing you do when you are alone? <laughs> yeah. Well... <laughs>
I'm thinking. I'm percolating. Go a lot of places. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't think that through. I know. I know. We didn't think this through. No. That you're okay with sharing. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Oh, well, that makes it easier. <laughs> I think for me, probably the weirdest thing, I, I have conversations with myself. And a lot of it stems from, I used to drive a 1978 VW bus and yes. the, the stereo broke in it. And this was back when I was in college, but I was back for the summer and driving from Evergreen, Colorado to Arvada for a job that I had there. And so every Whoa. day I'm making oh. this huge drive. How long is that? Oh, it was probably usually about an hour each oh, way. Oh, wow. At least you're driving the bu- the bus. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. But I was so used to having music or something to listen to that I would just go nuts and I would start <laughs> talking at myself and I would yell at other cars that were doing things they shouldn't be. And then I would have the conversation from them back at myself. <laughs> You're and, having like a theater theater performance here. <laughs> it could go, I would get so passionate and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm here. So, <laughs> And so there are still times when I'll just be walking around the house and it's like, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Just go on for a while. That's awesome. Oh, I think... Beat that. <laughs> There's no chance. It's probably the way I talk to my dogs and play okay. with my dogs. We have a bad dog named Bandit. and um, That's a good name for a bad dog. <laughs> Bandit. Brian named her, and I think it's his fault she was a bad dog because she She's had to live up to her name. Reinforced every day. She's all, I'm an outlaw, y'all. <laughs> this is how I roll. This is what I gotta do. That is totally bandit. She's like, don't mess with this. So she and I, like, she jumps up on me and grabs onto me, and we dance and we we play, and that's probably really ridiculous. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's great. Oh. Well, thank you both yes, thank so you. much. Thank you. thank you all. Yeah, Making the trip us. to Denver and being here in the studio with us and sharing. And the heat. And the yeah. heat. In our sauna. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, and we're all yeah, out. just everything, sharing yeah, your story. And we're so, so excited to support you along your journey. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Okay, so we talk about connection. That's what our deal is here. So we have a six-step roadmap for instant connection. You can get that at connectionroadmap.com. It will give you the hookup on what to do to get instantly connected with people in this world. Thanks for listening. You can find more about this episode and a way to connect to the community at lessalonepodcast.com. And if you like us, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to leave a review. It helps other people find us and could be just what they need.